Christian joy doesn't make sense to a whole lot of people. And why should it? I, I made a list of, of some of the things that happen in our world and, and how could we expect somebody with, uh, to have any sense of joy when there's uh, money issues, health issues, death, annoying people, bad traffic, home repair, job loss, wildfires, hurricanes, racism, Republicans, Democrats, millennials, old people, there's nights I can't sleep, there's days that just seem unbearable, there are loved ones who are hard to love, there's mosquitoes, and there are stupid people on Facebook. If we're looking for a reason to not have joy, we can easily find it. And Paul kind of tackles that as he brings us to the fourth chapter of Philippians. He identifies uh, three areas where we could really say that having joy doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that he still says to rejoice. And so in this fourth and final week of our series, Counterculture, uh, we're gonna, we remember that we've looked at uh, a joy in Christ that supersedes disappointment, our circumstances, and life itself. The second week, we said that uh, a great source of joy is our Christian unity, being together, um, that we uh, have a, a right attitude. It's maintained by our right theology, and it's strengthened by right models. Then last week, we said that joy is based on Christ, and when our joy is based on Christ, it keeps us from failing to find joy anywhere else. It's part of a process that the more we get to know Christ, the more joy we have, and that joy in knowing Christ is contagious. So he's kind of packaged all of that into the first three chapters, and now the fourth chapter, um, it's not a ton of new material. It's really him practically applying what he's just said in three different Scenarios. So the first thing we see is rejoice even around difficult people. Rejoice even around difficult people. Looking at verses one through three of Philippians four. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia, and urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul starts off kind of easy. He says there's going to be difficult people, but even in the midst of those difficult people, we can have joy. And that's not a real hard concept for us to get. We know that we don't have to base our joy on people. It, it, it's kind of a given. So here we have Euodia and Syntyche, great names, um, but they disagree. They disagree. And remember, the whole letter of Philippians, we said, is Paul writing to people he loves. He's trying to encourage them. And yet he calls these people out by name. He doesn't mince words. You know exactly who he's talking about. Uh, there's somebody who's causing division, people who are being difficult within this church in Philippi, um, but Paul seems to believe that they're both good women. Uh, they both have shared in the cause of the gospel. They're both Christians. They're both believers. But something has caused division. Now, we could go down a rabbit trail and try to figure out what it is, but really it's not worth the conjecture because we've all been divided by different things. It doesn't matter who you are. You had a problem with somebody at some point. Paul is focused on the eternal issue. Paul's focused on the eternal issue um, because these ladies, basically what he says, you're, you're focused on something petty. You're not focused on the big picture here. You're focused on something really petty. And how do I get that? I get that from verses two and three. 
Uh, in verse two, he tells them to live in harmony in the Lord. And in verse three, he reminds them that their names are in the book of life. He says, look, yeah, you've got all this stuff going on amongst you, but you've got two things you really got to remember. Number one, you're to live in harmony in the Lord. You can do that because the Lord is your Lord. He's the savior of your life. So you've got that in common and your names are in the book of life. You are part of the faithful. You are part of, of God's, God's chosen, the ones he has set apart, the ones he wants to impact the world for good. And that's what we agree on. That's what we look to. That's how we uh, get past this little debacle here. Don't base your joy on what people are doing because people will frustrate you. Focus on what matters. And that is a lot like us. You know, we tend to trade in the godly for the goofy things that come up. We give up on the divine nature of God and his, his supreme status for the drama that can so easily entangle us. We have a situation go wrong, uh, something come up, and the drama just overwhelms us. And we focus on the drama instead of on the divine. And we trade in the powerful for the petty, like these women have done. But Paul says, God's people see past these things that pull us apart. And remember in, in chapter three, we said, he said, I press on toward the prize of the upward call of God. I'm laying aside all this other stuff. I press on toward the prize. So we see Paul reminding them to just look ahead, look at what matters. Um, don't let your joy be based on people. So rejoice even around difficult people because your joy isn't coming from people in the first place. Uh, many pastors have used this uh, line I've heard. I don't know who it originated with, but it's a great uh, guideline for us to focus on the godly, not the goofy, the divine, not the drama, the powerful, not the petty. In the essentials, unity. On the things that matter, be united. So these ladies, they're obviously united in the gospel. They've worked for the good of the gospel. They've proclaimed the gospel. They helped Paul with that. So in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And the things that really don't matter allow people to have some freedom with it. In the things where the Bible isn't cut and dry, where the Bible doesn't say that, it, that it, you need to do something a certain way, have liberty. Have liberty. And in all things, Charity. In all things, charity, regardless of whether it's an essential or a non-essential, be charitable, be loving in the way you interact. So uh, rejoice even around difficult people. And if we focus on the right things, we can do that. Uh, these ladies weren't doing that. And Paul saw this division in this church he loved, and he just wanted to take care of that from the get-go. Um, and so that's really point one, rejoice even around difficult people. Just a few verses there. Uh, that Paul lays that out for us. And uh, verse four then, then tra transitions us into the next section, but it helps us with this difficult people idea too. Uh, verse four says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's like that Sunday school song that we know, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Again. He gets, gets the idea across. We need to rejoice in all things. And again, I say rejoice. So rejoice around difficult people. The second one is where we start to get a little bit more difficult, a little bit harder to see, especially when we're going through something. Rejoice even when you're not sure about the outcome. Rejoice even when you're not sure about the outcome. We turn to verses four through nine for this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So rejoice even when you're not sure about the outcome. And immediately we can see how that gets harder because rejoicing around difficult people, we just give ourselves a, a little cushion. We give ourselves a little, a little room there. We don't, we don't let them infiltrate us, uh, our minds and our thought life. But when you're not sure about the outcome, you tend to worry. You tend to, to really start to worry. Uh, because verse four, as good as it is, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say we rejoice. As good as that is, we're even better at worrying. We are really good at worrying. Uh, and, and I think of another Sunday school song. I've got peace like a river. I've got joy like a fountain. Peace and joy go together uh, based on that song and some actual Bible passages. But um, peace and joy go together. And when we're worrying, we don't have peace. And Paul gets to the point of that next Peace and joy go together. They, uh, they go together and we learn that song that I've got peace like a river, I've got joy like a fountain, I've got love like an ocean in my soul and all that. But then we grow up. We stop going to Sunday school. We stop attending those classes. We, we, we no longer have to wait to be picked up by our parents. And suddenly those songs fade to the back of our minds and the things that are at the forefront are, are the pain and the heartache and the, the sickness, the death, the peer pressure, the bills, the debt, the bad job situation, our bad families, etc., etc. Paul says externally there is trouble, but inside you, you need to maintain the supernatural contentment, the supernatural contentment in the, in the midst of life. Paul reminds them that circumstances change, but Christ remains. You see, circumstantial evidence never holds up in court. We know that from all the crime shows that we watch. Circumstantial evidence is never good enough. And in the same way, circumstantial joy isn't gonna hold you up either. If your joy is based solely on your circumstances, then you'll have peace like a river only if you have joy like a fountain and, and, and all that gets messed up when all that other stuff comes into life. So rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. He said, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. You can't have this gentle spirit in verse five uh, without an inner enduring joy. It actually um, ties to uh, Philippians 2 verse four. Again, I said he ref he's kind of bringing it all together for us. Philippians 2 verse 4, remember, says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do not merely look out for yourself, but also look out for others. It's that idea of your joy doesn't come from self-importance. So have a gentle spirit. The Lord is near. The nearness of the Lord reminds us again of that hope that we talked about last week, that, that we have a, a place in eternity, that, that God has prepared a place 
for us. There's a sense also of, of the rapture and the judgment to come. The Lord is near. So be gentle to one another. We know we're gonna sit on the judgment seat of Christ and give an answer for everything we've done. But it's also the hope of his return and and we want people to be a part of that. And so if they see us frantic and frazzled, uh, they're not gonna get the message either. So uh, we're hopeful, we're, we're peaceful, we're gentle in all that we do. The Lord is near. So Paul says we can have joy and we can have gentleness And we have this promise that Christ is coming. So then verse six, a a very popular verse, there's two of them in chapter four. Uh, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Can you imagine a life like that? Because remember, we are really good at worrying. We are really, really good at worrying. I'm excellent at worrying. Growing up, I worried about hitting the mailbox backing out of our driveway. All the time, backing down the driveway, I'd be turned around watching where this mailbox is because I did not want to be in the car when somebody backed into the mailbox. I worried about the dumbest stuff. And now today I have some things that I personally think are more worth worrying about. But, but the Bible says be anxious for nothing, for nothing. And as we get to thinking about this, we, we know we can give some Sunday school answers of, of why we shouldn't worry. And we say, well, it's because God knows what's gonna happen. And yes, he knows what's gonna happen, uh, but that doesn't give us ultimate comfort. Ultimate comfort comes from knowing he's already there. Ultimate comfort comes from knowing he's already there. God is omnipresent and he exists in eternity. It's not like he moves through time like the rest of us. He is already there. Uh, a way to understand this is when my family goes to the cabin when it's cold, um, I would always look forward to being part of the first group to go up to prepare the cabin, to, to warm the place up, get the fire going, get the heaters on, uh, get it warm. Because everybody in my family knew how to do this, but actually having somebody there created an atmosphere of comfort. In the same way, knowing that God is already there already on the other side of our medical issue, on the other side of our broken relationship, on the other side of our last job, whatever it is, he's created a place of comfort for us, a place to rejoice always because he's there. He doesn't just know what's gonna happen, he's there. We have comfort in who he is. So be anxious for nothing, but in everything, He doesn't leave anything out. There's nothing that gets past this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Every um, one of those three words is very important. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Uh, Prayer is the action. Prayer is what you're to do. It's the discipline. You are to pray. To, and when you do that, you indicate a trust and an adoration for who God is. And you're worshiping him. You acknowledge God's position. But then it's not just any prayer. It's supplication. Supplication is a prayer that basically says, help me. Help me. It indicates our humility before him. We present requests for a specific purpose. In supplication, we can be honest, we can be raw. We can say, God, I don't understand what's going on here. Help me. God, I can't do it on my own. Help me. 
I think of, of Christ in the garden when he's praying. I think of, of some of the Psalms of David, of Psalms of lament, Psalms where he's crying out to God. Our prayers don't all have to be, you know, coffee mug type prayers, things that we'd want to print on a coffee mug and sell to people. They can be raw, they can be real, they can be honest. So we pray and we pray with supplication, presenting our needs to God. Those things we would otherwise worry about, we present them to God and say, help me. But then the attitude with which we do that becomes important too. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I think there's two ways to take that word thanksgiving. Uh, the first is the idea of being thankful for something. So you lose your job, you're thankful that you know that God is faithful. Faithful, Thankful that you know that God can provide for you. Uh, a bad doctor's report, you're, th- you're thankful that God is the healer. You're thankful that God created our bodies and therefore knows us. Thankful that he's raised up doctors to study uh, these bodies that he has made and they understand uh, so that they can help us. We're facing foreclosure, losing a loved one. We're, we're, we're thankful. We're thankful no matter how bad our situation seems, it, it, it could be even worse. I think of uh, Jurassic Park the first one, um, when they're uh, huddled together while some of them are out in the park uh, facing all sorts of fun stuff. Um, and the guy turns to John, the little old man, and he says, it could have been worse, John, a lot worse. And we have that attitude sometimes when we pray that it's not as bad as it could be. But I think even deeper than that, we should just be thankful that we have a God that hears us. Be thankful that even if it doesn't turn out my way, I have a God who listens to me. And I have a God who's gonna provide comfort when I get to the other side of this. And I'm just thankful that he hears me because there's nobody on this earth I could talk to that's gonna get me out of this anxiety-filled situation. But I have a heavenly father who loves me, who hears me, who hears me when I cry. And so yes, we're thankful for some of these easier things, but deeper than that, we're thankful that God hears us. And just that fact alone is calming and it draws us into an attitude of worship. We have a God who hears us, who doesn't leave us to figure everything out on our own. And so if we do pray like this, if we do pray with supplication and, and thanksgiving, he says we won't have, have anxiety. In fact, verse seven says the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says, not only will you not have anxiety, you will have a peace that doesn't make sense, a peace that you can't understand. It doesn't say anything in here about our circumstances changing. We know God can work miracles. There's miracle after miracle in this book. But we can have a peace even if our circumstances don't change because God has changed our mindset. We're no longer focused on what causes the anxiety. We're focused on our God, focused on our Savior. To summarize that, I would say prayerful people are peaceful people. Prayerful people, people who, who submit to God, who, who present supplication, who, who say, God, help me. Who just take that ultimate 
step of humility saying, I can't do anything about this, but you can help me. And once you've done that, you just say, thank you for hearing me. Thank you for hearing me. And suddenly the weight of life lifts off of us. And so if we're currently living without peace and, and without prayer, Paul says to reorganize your life. Reorganize your life. Prioritize peace or you'll be doomed to drama. Look at verses eight and nine. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He tells us how to think. He says, think about what's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise. Think about those things. Fill your mind with those things. And then he tells us what to practice. Practice everything he's been saying. Practice what the gospel tells them. Practice what Paul has demonstrated, learned, what what they've received, what they've heard and, and seen. And then the end of verse nine says, and the God of peace will be with you. The result is peace. So we rejoice even around difficult people. And then we rejoice even when we don't know the outcome. And we rejoice even when we don't have enough. Even when we don't have enough. And, and I leave that kind of open-ended because enough can be uh, many different things. Uh, but we're about to paint a picture with the context here of, of another very popular verse. And uh, we need to keep in mind that it's about having enough, about what we have, about what gives us a sense of contentment. So verses 10 through 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who, th- who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's saying to base our contentment on what God is doing. Uh, Paul starts by saying he was encouraged by their support. Uh, the Philippian church was a very supportive church and they're able to help him uh, again. And he says, that's great. I'm thankful for it. But I was content already. He said, I- I've learned contentment. Humble means I'm content. Prosperity, I'm content. Abundance, I'm content. Hungry, I'm, I'm, I'm content. Suffering a need, I'm content. And if we think about Paul's life, we can see this big time. Because Paul, uh, remember, he talked about his uh, resume a couple weeks ago. And we said that he checked everything off the list. 
He said uh, about keeping the law that he was zealous. And we know that before he became a Christian, he would persecute people. In fact, when they, when, uh, in Acts, when we read of them stoning Stephen, Paul's the one, uh, a young man standing there holding the jackets of the men who are throwing stones at Stephen until his death. And Paul's just saying, yeah, we gotta, yeah, keep going, keep going, guys. You got this, you got this. He was on their side. He wanted the law upheld to a T and had no room in his life for grace. He was gonna be the next big thing in terms of Jews in Jerusalem. But then he went to Damascus or was on his way to Damascus because he heard that these Christians were over there too and they were starting to disrupt things. So he was heading that way and, and Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and that's where he, uh, Saul became Paul. He went to Ananias and, and, and Ananias uh, helped him even though Ananias would have been very fearful that Paul was in his presence because he had been killing and persecuting Christians. And then Paul, as a Christian, he, his life completely turned around and the people he was once against, he was now for, but they didn't completely trust him. And then the people that he was once with now wanted to kill him. His closest friends, the people he spent time with, the people he stayed up late at night with, they wanted to kill him. Paul understands the difference between having and not having. He was stoned, he was beaten with rods, uh, one time while he was preaching, he, he had all these stones start coming after him and, and he was beaten down and yet he, he lived through that and he was raised up and, and then he was going around from town to town presenting the gospel. He came to Lydia. Uh, we know that, that Lydia is where the church of Philippi started, where this letter uh, is coming from. Uh, and, and that went really well. They started a great church, but then he got thrown in prison there. So he went from living in Lydia's house, who was really rich and wealthy, to living in prison. Then he, uh, he was able to get out of there by God's work, and he did some more ministry, and now he's writing this letter again from house arrest. Uh, so Paul understands the fluctuation between having and have not, the fluctuation uh, be between good times and bad times, and so when he says that he's learned uh, to have contentment, learned to have peace in all things, um, he really means it. But then, right after that, comes verse 13. I can do all things through him who, th who strengthens me. And so suddenly we realize the context of that next coffee mug verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What it doesn't mean is that you can do anything you want. One, uh, one uh, preacher, Matt Chandler, gave the illustration of when he was growing up, uh, there were t-shirts that were popular. Maybe you saw them uh, that had a baseball player ready to swing and uh, it had that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he said, that's great until you're the kid who strikes out and gets kicked off the team. We have this idea that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is gonna support us no matter what we try to do. But what it really means is you can do all the things that Christ calls you to do. You can do all the things that Christ calls you to do because the context is clearly about what Paul has or doesn't have. It's a spiritual stability to rise above whatever circumstances. If I'm rich, doesn't affect me. Christ gives me my strength. If I'm poor, doesn't affect me. Christ gives me my strength. He says the mature believer lives this way faithfully depending on Christ for strength. 
Too often we mess that up and we start to think, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but there are some things I can just do on my own. He says, that's not the attitude we have. I do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We faithfully depend on Christ for strength. It's not just when we feel weak. It's not just when finances are running low that we turn to him. Not just when we have enough. Not just when we don't have enough. In fact, oftentimes we focus so much on what we have or don't have that we completely miss what we actually have in Christ. We completely miss what we actually have in Christ and therefore we limit ourselves in how we enjoy life with him. So I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I wanna go down just a tiny rabbit trail and point out a lie that many of us believe. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is the truth, but the lie is God won't give you more than you can handle. God won't give you more than you can handle. That, that lie is destroyed by this very verse. Because in this realm of what we can handle, in this realm of, of what Paul's calling us to do, it has nothing to do with what you can handle as far as what you encounter, as far as what, what you have to face in life. It has nothing to do with it, what you can handle. It has everything to do with what he will give you strength to handle. It has nothing to do with what you can personally handle. It has everything to do with what he will give you strength to handle. It's all about relying on him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't do hardly anything on my own. And so will God give you more than you can handle? Absolutely. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So we need to stop telling people that God won't give them more than, he can, than they can handle because it's a lie. And so we're pointing people to their own abilities in that case instead of pointing them to Christ, which is our ultimate goal, our ultimate call to point people to Christ. He's saying circumstances can change, but it doesn't change what I know about Christ. So we must stop saying the lie and we must start living that truth. Our faith grows when we face more than we can handle. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me needs to be rightly understood and it needs to be rightly lived out. So keep your mugs, keep your pillows with the verse on it, that's fine, but let's live it out correctly. Let's not misapply the verse. God will bring us through all things regardless of our circumstance when our strength is in Christ. And then he moves quickly to the end of the chapter, verses 14 uh, through the end. He says, uh, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So he's saying, you've supported me and I really appreciate that, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So even if you didn't support me, uh, I, I would have been okay. But nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. 
And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So just a few observations about that uh, section, uh, we see the, the benefit of, of giving, the benefit of supporting ministry. Philippians reached out to Paul, um, and, and, and Paul could have focused on that, uh, but he didn't. He said, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me. It's, I'm so glad you have, but I can do all things through Christ. So the Philippians have this track record of helping Paul, he then says, and he says that the neat thing about that is that I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. He's saying, you're giving to me, but what that's actually doing is maturing you and developing you in your faith. And that's what really I get the greatest joy out of because I I appreciate the support. um, But even if you didn't do it, I would keep doing what I'm doing. God uh, will supply my needs. Um, So they've got this track record of supporting. They've helped Paul more than any other church he says, even when he was serving in another church, uh, they supported him. When he was in Thessalonica, he says they uh, supported him even there. And he says that as a result, God would help the Philistines. Um, they were living a life based on contentment from God and not from man. So the money issue wasn't a big thing for them. They had learned uh, to be content whatever they had. But then verse 21, um, greet every saint in Christ Jesus The brethren who are with me greet you. Uh, Remember when Paul said that he had to send Timothy and Epaphroditus to be the helpers because there wasn't anybody else around him who was good enough uh, to send them to be a right model? Uh, That was two weeks ago. But we said that out of the whole church around him, nobody else was good enough, so he had to send Timothy and Epaphroditus because nobody else uh, was there. And yet, we still see the unity of the body of Christ, even though they weren't where Paul wanted them to be yet. He said uh, the brethren weren't right models then, but there was still a shared sense of faith. And so the brethren who are with me greet you. There was still this idea of family, even though they hadn't gotten it completely right um, so that reminds us that people don't have to be perfect. They're on a path. We've talked about that a lot. We're on a path uh, called sanctification where we get closer and closer to who God wants us to be. It doesn't change his love for us. It just increases our love for him. And so we see this idea of the family of God there. And then in verse 22, I thought this was really interesting. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Caesar's household would have included all of these guards that came to Christ while Paul was in prison. He's saying, even these people who are keeping me in chains greet you because we're family. So we can see Philippians still have some things to figure out, to get worked out there. Um, But this idea of, of the Christian family and the unity that he's trying to build even to the very last verses of this book. And then he ended this letter by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And you say, well, why would he say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why wouldn't he say something about the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ? And honestly, it wasn't a very sudden switch because this is really cool. In the Greek, in the original languages, the word for joy and the word for grace come from the same root word. So if we're dwelling on the grace of Christ, 
we're going to experience the joy of Christ because we realize that Christ is grace, that Christ is joy, that when we focus on him, we will have both. So Paul says to rejoice even around difficult people, rejoice even when you don't know the outcome of a situation, and rejoice even when you don't have enough. Paul wanted the best for these people. He loved the Philippians. They would have been so excited to receive this letter from him. And he's been able to give gentle reproof. He's been able to encourage them. He's been able to say, you're here. Let's, let's go here. Let, let's really experience God in, in new ways and better ways. Let's have joy in Christ no matter what's happening around us. And now we get to share in that too because it's been preserved for us. We get to see what, 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 a, what a, a great figure of the faith would say to a church to go even deeper, to go even further. It's to have joy, to rejoice in our circumstances, to have joy in our Christian unity, to, to have a, a joy that is found solely in Christ. And it's a, to have a joy that we rejoice in even when it doesn't make sense. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you know so well the things we go through in life because you sent your son to live as one of us, to live as a human. And then you raised up this man, Paul, to experience both sides of, of the religious climate in his day, the, the Jewish side, the very legalistic side, and the side that thrives on grace and mercy and peace and the love of Christ. And he found great joy in that. And he communicated that then to these Philippians. Heavenly Father, I pray that regardless of what I've said or how I've phrased it, that you would speak through something in these four chapters. That you'd be working on our affections for you. That you'd be working on the way we love you, the way we respond to you, the way we, we regard you that we would start to see more and more joy in our life by putting you, by putting Christ in the position that he needs to be. Heavenly Father, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We don't shy away from that verse just by focusing on the context. Instead, we run to it, we embrace it. We find great hope in it, great delight, great joy that if Christ is the center, if we live for Christ, this joy can be ours to experience too, regardless. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.